Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, a few people have recognized what this is, the music. It's not English choral music. So who knows what it is? Paul Simon, slip sliding away. So keep that lyric in the back of your mind, slip sliding away. It is the theme of this letter tonight. So it is... Uh, very apt, and sometime when you have time, go and look at the lyrics because there's actually a whole verse about God in the song. So sometimes you find things in the least expected places. Start us off with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather in your name and to study this amazing book. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, not to C.S. Lewis's wisdom, but to the wisdom of your kingdom that is contained in your word, for which C.S. Lewis can be a guide. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we listen and consider these words tonight to think about what it means to really follow hard after you. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to serve you and that you would use this time to equip us to do that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we are uh, going to jump into letter 12 tonight. And letter 12, we're in, we're in sort of the greatest hits of screw tape letters right now. Um, the one last week about joy and humor and laughter is one of the most important letters in the book because there's, in that little short letter, there's a whole theology about laughter and joy and flippancy and all of those things. And so tonight, it's no different. Um, it is full of riches. So let's say together this verse uh, from Ephesians to remind us about the battle we're in. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we've said before about this, one of the glorious things about this verse is how proactive it is. It is a very proactive, put on, not passive, waiting for something to happen, but preparing. It's like that old proverb, forewarned is forearmed. And there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I wanted to just come, and I can't remember if I've ever said this in here, but Jeff Miller has a great definition of the evil day. The evil day, there are some days when you have the desire to sin, but you don't have the opportunity. There are other days where you have the opportunity to sin, but you don't have the desire to sin. But the day where you have the desire to sin and the opportunity to sin, that is the evil day. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So... Again, why we're studying this book that was written so long ago, back during World War II, uh, it is, I think, even more relevant today than when it was written. Uh, there are great lessons in this book about understanding the battle that we're in, uh, and in our culture today, we are most definitely in a battle. Um, lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview, lessons on the psychology of temptation, Lessons on habits to cultivate the deepen faith in Christ. And lessons on living a boldly Christian life. Nowhere in scripture are we commanded to live 
and insipid Christian life. Nowhere are we commanded to lead a Christian life that has no impact on the world. We are commanded to live in a way that honors Jesus Christ and that draws others to him. So all of this, one of the subtexts that's all through this book that we're going to keep coming back to is about the importance of habits. And we say this every week, but I think we need to because we are so inured to this. We just don't think about it. But I love this little excerpt from The Common Rule. Only when your habits are constructed, and when you think about a building being constructed, it's very deliberate. It's, uh, buildings are not built in an accidental kind of way because if they do, they don't stand. But they're constructed in a very particular way. So when your habits are constructed to match your worldview, only when that happens do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. And the subtext of habits runs all the way through this book. So we talked a little bit before about habits from letter 10. I'm just going to run through these quickly as a review. First, choose your friends wisely. You become your friends Uh, The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom about this. It used to be very normal that people read a chapter of Proverbs every day because it conveniently has 31 chapters. Um, That is a discipline that would be a wonderful thing to recover. And if you want to read a really great book on Proverbs, Tim Keller has a fantastic book on Proverbs that I would commend to you. Um, The second thing, cultivate authenticity and speak the truth in love. Um, I was at a seminar this weekend, and they were recounting the same surveys that I've quoted in here about when you ask the man on the street who's not a Christian, what are the first words that come to mind when you hear of a Christian? The first word is judgmental, and the second one is hypocritical. So that is uh, not good news for us in the church. So cultivating authenticity is really important, particularly when you live in a culture where there's a presumption against you that you're a hypocrite. Thirdly, remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. Sometimes it's all too easy to think that once we have given our lives to Christ, that that's sort of all there is to it, and we just sort of put it, go on autopilot, you know, and we just cruise on cruise control. Um, and there, there's a sense in which our salvation is accomplished because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we also are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us. And so it's not a static thing. So every day we are choosing what we're going to do with the time that God has given us. Live purposefully, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities. That's pretty clear. Cultivate an integrated life rather than a spiritual secular split. One of the diseases of our culture is we live in perhaps the most compartmentalized culture in the history of the world where we have different identities for different things. So we act one way when we're with our tennis team. We act another way when we're with the people in our office. We act another way at church. And there are different customs and things that are acceptable in each of those circumstances. And so we are becoming the literal definition of a hypocrite. As we've talked about before, hypocrite comes from the Greek word that means mask or actor. And it comes from the Greek dramas when they would be way down there on that stage of the big amphitheater, and they would pick up this big mask that would show which character they were playing. And then when it became time for the actor to portray someone else, He would go backstage, put that mask down, and come out with a different one on. But it's a very good description of the way that, unfortunately, it is all too easy to live. And then lastly, be deliberate about living out your priorities, constructing those habits. Letter 11 from last week. Um, There's so much wisdom in this letter that I would commend to you to, from time to time, just go back and reread this one. The first habit... Avoid surrounding yourself in person or virtually with scoffers. In case you haven't noticed, there's a lot of scoffing in our culture today. Um, People who scoff at everything, not just God. That there's nothing that's sacred, there's nothing that's serious. 
And if you are surrounded by that day in, day out, you just start thinking that it's normal. And as Christians, we are called to avoid that. Psalm 1 is such a great example of that. We've talked about Psalms, one of the great Hebrew books in the Bible. Um, And in the Hebrew culture, the first of something is always really important. So the first verse of the first Psalm is extra important. And we get how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And of course, the rest of that is, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. Scoffing is everywhere. It is all over social media. It's all over the news. It's all over journalism. Um, But protecting yourself from that is really important. Secondly, cultivate joy. Um, Screw tape, there are certain things that just drive screw tape crazy. They make him so upset. And this is, this is the first example that we've seen of that. We're going to get to another example in a few weeks that's even funnier. But what upsets him is that sometimes when they're trying to get at the patient, there's this opaque cloud around the patient. And not only can they not make the patient hear them, but they can't even figure out if the patient's in there or not. It's like the other night I was driving across the Ravenel Bridge after the Clemson football game, and you could not see six inches in front of you. I mean, it was pea soup fog. Well, that's what Screwtape's talking about here, and it drives him crazy. And this particular opaque fog is caused when the patient is experiencing Christian joy. When the patient is experiencing Christian joy, he can't be tempted, he can't be got at by Satan's schemes. So that sort of makes it pretty obvious that that might be something we want to cultivate. So cultivating joy is really important. Um, it's can, even Screwtape realizes this, that joy is connected with music and heaven. And, of course, Screwtape is appalled by both of those. So the more that we can do to cultivate joy, the better, and joy that's rooted in our faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the sad things, how many of you know the painting American Gothic? So it's the man with the sour face and the woman with the sour face, with the pitchfork. That's what most people think Christians are like. And they think that God, you know, and this is a quote from Lewis in Mere Christianity, they think God is a mean old man sitting up in heaven, looking around for anyone having fun so he can yell down to them, stop it. And that, that's the view that people have. But Christians should be flowing over with joy. Then the third thing, plan regular times of fun that promote love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. This is something else that our culture has largely lost, is the idea of innocent, wholesome fun, where you plan something. Now, that's a radical concept. Planning in advance what you're going to do with your discretionary time instead of texting at 6 p.m. on a Friday night, what's up? Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is something we can all work on. But planning things that are just fun, And we live in an area that is full of amazing things to do. But all too often, we settle, well, we'll get to that in tonight's letter. Um, And fourthly, avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. This is rampant in our culture, especially in schools, um, where all sorts of just horrible mean, cruel, despicable things are said to people. And then when somebody's called on the carpet about, oh, I was just joking. They knew I was joking. They didn't. They knew I didn't mean it. Well, as Christians, we need to avoid that at all cost. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, flee from flippancy. And Lewis says something pretty extraordinary in this letter um, about flippancy. And just, again, to define flippancy, frivolously disrespectful, shallow, lacking in seriousness, 
characterized by levity, especially with respect to serious or sacred subjects. <coughs> the, the mantra of flippancy is whatever. Uh, Lewis says in this letter, speaking through screw tape, that flippancy builds up the finest armor plating that there is against the work of the enemy. In other words, that the opposite of the spiritual armor that we talked about putting on is flippancy. If you cover yourself with that, you put up a bulletproof shield against the work of the Holy Spirit. And we live in a culture where flippancy is the norm. Um, it's very, it takes courage and vulnerability to be real and authentic, to be compassionate, to be kind, to tell people that you love them or that you value them. It's much easier to just joke around all the time. And Lewis is trying to tell us that the Christian church, part of what makes us stand out from the world is that we do not embrace flippancy. So that brings us to letter 12, uh, which is another glorious one. So, my dear Wormwood, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is lest in attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. For this, well, I'm just going to break in here for a minute. How many people in here sail? Yes. All right, if you sail and you're off by three degrees, only three degrees on a journey that's 500 miles long, what's going to happen to you? Yeah, you're going to be utterly lost. Three degrees doesn't seem like very much. But three degrees, you just get a little bit off and you're on the wrong line. And when you're on the wrong line, every step you take, every yard you sail, takes you farther away from what your goal is. And that's what he's saying here. For this reason, I'm almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. Ouch. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first few months of his Christian life, that being the time when he was really strong in his faith and very aware of Christ's presence. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. This dim uneasiness needs careful handling. If it gets too strong, it may wake him up and spoil the whole game. On the other hand, if you suppress it entirely, which, by the way, the enemy will probably not allow you to do, we lose an element in the situation which can be turned to good account. If such a feeling is allowed to live, but not allowed to become irresistible and flower into real repentance, it has one invaluable tendency. It increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. All humans at nearly all times have some such reluctance, but when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, this reluctance is increased tenfold. They hate every idea that suggests him, just as men in financial embarrassment hate the very sight of a bank book. In this state, your patient will not omit, but he will increasingly dislike his religious duties. He will think about them as little as he feels he decently can beforehand and forget them as soon as possible when they are over. 
A few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention in his prayers. But now you will find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. He will want his prayers to be unreal, for he will dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. His aim will be to let sleeping worms lie. (laughs) As this condition becomes more fully established, you will gradually be freed from the tiresome business of providing pleasures as temptations. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness, and his habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy, oh, there that is again, at once less pleasant and harder for, to forego, for that is what habit fortunately does to a pleasure, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes, to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time, not only in conversation he enjoys with people whom he likes, but also in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. So that at last he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. The Christians describe the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why, and the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, and drumming of fingers and kicking of heels and whistling tunes he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Scrito. Okay, so that's nice and cheery, isn't it? So that's why we had slipped sliding away as our theme song tonight, because that whole slip sliding is what Satan wants to do to us. And this, again, going way back, You might remember in our very first class, we talked about how all too often our idea of Satan tempting people involves the idea that you might walk out the door and a big black limo will roll up and the tinted window will come down and a guy in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork will get out and look at you in the eye and say, come with me to do evil. And that's that's what we think temptation is going to be like. But Satan is much smarter than that. He is subtle, and he wants to use all of these things and do exactly what that patient is quoted in here as saying, that I've spent all of my life doing neither what I liked nor what I should have done. And that's what Satan wants to do. It's like, as scripture says, the thief, Satan, comes to steal and kill and destroy I, Jesus, have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
And the really sad thing is the world has bought into the lie that all the fun is with Satan. It's like the Billy Joel song we talked about last week. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners have much more fun. Only the good die young. Well, with all due respect to Billy Joel, um, that is not the witness of the scriptures. So, there are so many things we could pull out of this letter, but I've tried to restrain myself at least somewhat. So, uh, habits to annoy the devil from letter 12. The first one, be aware of your spiritual trajectory. Uh, Take stock on a regular basis. It is so important to know whether you are moving closer to God, growing in your walk with God, or whether you're moving away from God. And the problem for most most of us, or maybe I should say for me, I don't know about y'all, but it's all too easy to think, well, if I'm going to church on Sunday and Wednesday, it's all good. And certainly going to church on Sunday and Wednesday are good things. But that is not uh, an indication of where your heart may be going. And what is so clear in this letter is that Satan loves to get us just a little bit off. He doesn't have to get us to say, okay, I've decided I'm going to become a Mormon or something like that. He doesn't make us make a radical choice. We just get a little bit off. And as we get a little bit off, it's like when the sextant has the course and where we veer off of that a couple of degrees, we end up in a place we could never have imagined that we would go. And so this being aware of your trajectory is really important. There are a couple of ways that can help you be aware of your spiritual trajectory. Wow, I don't know why I can't say that tonight. (laughs) Trajectory. Um, One of the things that can be a really helpful exercise, if you do not have a prayer partner I would strongly encourage you to find someone that you pray with at least once a month and talk about what actually is going on in your spiritual life and have one of the questions that happens every time you meet be, do you feel like you're growing deeper in your walk with God or do you feel like you're falling farther away from him? Because if you have that checkpoint, it gives you the opportunity to get some information. It's kind of like with your car. If you don't ever take your car to be serviced, you may think your car is doing great, but you might actually be just about ready to run out of oil and then have your whole engine implode on the interstate. And you might have no advance notes because you haven't checked it. You haven't checked the oil. So you need to check your trajectory. Another thing that can be really good to do that I think is a wonderful spiritual discipline is at the beginning of each month to make an appointment with yourself and just ask yourself a couple of questions. During this past month, what are the things that really helped me to grow closer to God? What are the things that drew me farther away from God? What are sins that I need to confess? What are things that I need to give thanks for? And what is a struggle I'm having that I need to get someone else to pray for me? So those are really good questions to ask yourself and they will help you um, be aware of what's going on here so that you're not just hoping that you're going in a good direction but you're aware and there Hebrews 10 is one of the great chapters of scripture I would commend to you the whole thing but just this particular section I think is so applicable to this let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, there's that big strong word, consider, think about, think about, and then think of options of how to do it. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, putting courage into one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That whole chapter is worth reading about this, but that, I think, is really good wisdom. Secondly, when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you 
to any needful repentance. So what do you think dim uneasiness is? Really, conviction that hasn't fully flowered. Okay, conviction that hasn't fully flowered. Yes, that's good. What else? Like being in a fog. Yes, being in a fog. Fog. You're kind of there, but not there. Yep. 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 Sometimes you just get hit around the head and shoulders by everything that's coming in every direction. Mm -hmm. And it drives you to the point where you just start to question. Yep, that's right. I think all of those things are right. And I think whenever you experience that, many of us, our tendency is to isolate or to shut down when we feel that way. And instead, what Lewis is saying here is that when we experience that dim uneasiness, Satan wants to use that to pry into our life and shut us down spiritually. So when we begin to experience that, that's a clue that that's when we need to proactively turn to God and ask that God would open our eyes and lead us to any needful repentance. The Psalms are great for this. I love this verse from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And the great thing about this is that you can take all the pressure off of yourself because God is much more interested in your doing his will than you are. And so if you ask him and say, search my heart and show me, the odds are that he'll do that. But so often we're afraid to ask, which leads us to the third point. When you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, Remind yourself of the truth of scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. And one of the things that you see all through this letter is Screwtape says that the enemy, well, I won't say the enemy because Screwtape means God by that, but the devil wants to get at you whenever you have messed up because he wants you to feel bad about it and because you feel bad about it, to think God is angry at you, that he's ready to smite and fry you on the spot, and therefore you need to hide from him and avoid his presence. And that is what false guilt does. Mm -hmm. False guilt drives you away from God. And we, unfortunately, I think many of us, think that there's something sort of holy about feeling like really guilty and away from God, And that is not scriptural at all. And the interesting thing is that Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son in the context of somebody who really, you might not think, really deserves forgiveness. And yet, Jesus, out of all the stories he could have told to talk about what God's attitude is towards somebody who has not just sinned a little, but sinned boldly, boldly said to his father, I wish you were dead, taken his money, and gone off and done every shameful thing that you could imagine. It is incredible when you read this. And Jesus tells this parable about this young man, and he says, but while the young man was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with, with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is an astounding story. And we've heard it so many times that we miss what God is saying. And the most important part of this that we miss is the part right at the beginning. Because in Hebrew culture, a Hebrew father, a man, would never run in public. Never, ever, ever. It's unthinkable that it would happen. And particularly to a son who had disrespected him, 
he wouldn't even approach him. He would wait for the son to come to him. The idea of the father running to the son would be as if you had gone to Buckingham Palace on one of those tourist open days and you're wandering in the gift shop and the Queen's Rolls Royce pulls up outside and she sees you and runs to you and throws her arms around you and says, welcome to Buckingham Palace. That's how radical this is. And God is telling us through Jesus' words that that is how he wants us to come to him when we've messed up. It's like when you're teaching your child to walk, you don't want your child, when they stumble, to just fall down and cry alone. You want to be able to gather that child in your arms and reassure them and encourage them. And one of the greatest works that Satan has done is to convince Christians that they should feel guilty and and stay away from God. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel bad about sinning. We should. We should feel terrible about that. But it should be guilt unto repentance that immediately sends us right to Jesus. So it's so important. If you start feeling like you're experiencing that reluctance, this is one of the reasons that we are told in Scripture to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other that we may be healed. Because it's hard for us to believe that God accepts us that way. But when we do that with a brother or sister in Christ and we experience their acceptance and forgiveness, it gives us hope that God, if a person can do that, how much more can God do that? And then fourthly, invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. And this, I think, again, is something that is so countercultural because this used to be something that was sort of normal in people's lives that they planned things to do and people didn't just sit at home in front of a TV because there wasn't one and people didn't sit at home scrolling through social media because there wasn't any social media and so you know they might have been sitting out on the porch telling stories or they might have invited people over or they might have gone for a walk But they didn't just sit at home and stare at the wall. And all too often, we isolate, and that's why we have this epidemic of loneliness in our culture. And Christians ought to be the ones that are pushing out of that, that are being inviting and asking people in. And there are two great scripture verses here. Uh, First, the soul of the sluggard. And just as an aside, sluggard is such a great word. It's not a word that occurs very often or that you can use at a cocktail party, but it's such a great word because it's kind of like it's kind of like a sloth mixed with a fool. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing combination. But the unfortunate thing is, if you're like me, there are times when that is an apt description. So the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then this beautiful verse, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the examples of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. This loving others, proactively reaching out and sharing love with one another and sharing Christ's love for one another and rejoicing in that is what helps keep us from being spiritually dull and indifferent. It's like that old analogy of the coal that you can take the brightest burning coal in a fire and if you pull it out of the fire and put it on the hearth, it will go out. And it is the same way with Christians. We need to be in contact with each other. And then, here's another really great word, not slothful, not slothful in business. Um, I think that's actually busyness rather than business. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing, that should be constant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Those would be great descriptors to have said of any of us. 
And again, notice how proactive all of them are. So there also are two truths about spiritual warfare in this letter that I think are really, really important. So I want to spend a little bit of time on these. The first one is to be aware of the power of nothing as used by the devil. And nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. And the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, and drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, and whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. And this, I think, for the culture that we live in, is an unbelievably important thing to get your head around. Because I will tell you, I know a lot of people that that is where they are living. Um, It is profoundly sad, and it is particularly younger people that find themselves living in this space. And the interesting thing to me is that description is so reminiscent of thinking of someone scrolling through social media Mm -hmm. for hours and hours and hours. And if you have read any of the statistics about screen time, not scream time, (laughs) screen time, um, they should give you pause because depending on which survey you listen to, sort of the low number of average number of hours in front of a screen per day is eight. Sort of the medium number is 11. And then the high number is like 14 or 15. And the younger you are, down to around age 11 or 12, the higher that number is. And you probably have seen that there's a tremendous amount of research now that says the more time that you spend on social media, the more likely you are to become seriously depressed. Um, because people are curating what they put on social media to make it look like they're beautiful and healthy and popular and having fun all of the time. And you're sitting at home alone with a cold slice of pizza and wondering, <laughs> what's the matter with you? And there's, there is a lot of that out there. And you know, one of the other things, and you've probably observed this, if you go out to eat very often, if you 10 years ago had gone out to eat in a restaurant it would have been extremely rare to go and see people sitting at a table in a restaurant who were staring at a device instead of talking to each other. But now it is extremely normal. And particularly if you go to restaurants that are up around the College of Charleston, you will actually see people that clearly, and if you ever hear their conversation, they've decided to come have lunch together to be together, and then they sit at the table, and they're both on their screen the whole time, and they don't talk to each other at all. Well, sometimes, sometimes they're texting each other. Sometimes it's a whole range of other things. But the thing that's so sad about that is that a virtual relationship is not the same as a real relationship. Talking to someone where you are able to look into the person's eyes, where you're able to pat them on the back, where you're able to communicate with the fullness of who God has created you to be is very, very different from that sort of experience. And this nothingness, the other thing that contributes to this is workaholism because people are so exhausted by the end of their workday that all they want to do is just collapse. And so the idea of planning something is really hard. This is one of the reasons that it's a really good idea to plan, if you find this is an issue for you, to plan some things for the next week during the weekend, because if it's already set up, 
you'll feel guilty about canceling it. And that might be a good kind of guilt in that case. And so you'll go do it. And usually, when you make yourself go, then you're really glad that you did. But all too often, it's easy to just sit there and experience this nothing. And it's like that old proverb, which is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but it is a principle that Scripture agrees with. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. And when you are idle, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong. It's no accident that there is a huge problem with pornography addiction that goes right along with this. Um, There are just all sorts of bad things that come from this power of nothing. And this is part of the reason that it's so important to understand how Satan wants to work on you. Because if if you think that Satan is out there you know, waiting to get you to murder somebody or something like that, you're not going to be alert for this kind of temptation. And if you start realizing that there's a lot of nothing in your life, um, that is a good clue that Satan is twisting your trajectory off of where it should be. The other thing about this, um, and I I meant to put the words to this up there, but I didn't, Um, go home and Google the lyrics to the old hymn, Come Labor On. Come labor on, who dares stand idle on the harvest plain, while all around him waves the golden grain. And to each servant does the master say, go work today. And the idea is that the fields are ripe for harvest. The people who have the word of life are those of us who are Christians. But if we've been sucked into the nothing, then who is going to be spreading that word? So it is really important that we recover that sense of urgency about that. All right. Second, Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning away than on spectacular sin. And this next quotation, you probably recognize this. This is one of the more famous quotations out of this whole book. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I think there is deep truth in that. And it's profoundly sad. But this is also closely allied to that other old proverb that's not in the Bible, but is very reflective of what Lewis is saying in Screwtape. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. All those ideas of, oh, it would be so good if I did that. And then you congratulate yourself for thinking of what a lovely idea that is. But if you don't ever do any of it, then you are slip sliding away on that comfortable slope. And the unfortunate thing is that that is the easy Road. It is the, the, the broad way that Jesus talks about that leads to destruction. And the unfortunate thing for many of us is that you can be on that road and not really realize it. And it's very much like um, the way that addiction works. I don't know how many of you know somebody or have someone in your family or struggle personally with addiction. But addiction, you always think that you've got it under control that you're the one that's in charge. And all of a sudden, and for a little while, that works. You are kind of in charge. But then all of a sudden, the switch flips, and all of a sudden, the thing that you're addicted to is controlling you, and you can't get out. 
And that's the way this works. That you start down that slope and you think, well, I'm still it's not I'm not too far down though, so if I can get back up. But you get far enough down and you realize that there's no way that you're going to get out. So this whole idea I think is really important. And one of the, the subtexts under both of these is that if you are in real, committed, vulnerable, true fellowship, it's almost impossible for these two things to happen. But we, American Christianity, is particularly vulnerable to this because we are the country of the lone ranger. You know, that we, you know, me and my horse out to save the world, and we don't need anyone, not even Tonto. Y'all are too young to know who Tonto is. But anyway, the, the problem is that we have this independent streak where we don't want to let our guard down. We don't want to rely on others. But scripture is so very clear that we cannot battle alone, that if we battle alone, we are doomed to failure. Jesus gave us one another so that we can be brothers and sisters to each other in this battle. So uh, with that, our final quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken (coughs) and still obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is in this letter. Lord, we confess to you how easy it is to dwell in the nothing, to become slothful, to isolate, to be slightly askew but think we're really not too bad and not to do anything about it. And Lord, to have that attitude of we don't really want to run to you because we're a little afraid because of what we've done. Lord, I pray that you would pour into our hearts and minds such a deep understanding of your love for us and the power of the forgiveness that you long to show us. And Lord, I pray that you would pour onto us also your Holy Spirit in such a way that we would be empowered to share this word of life with a world that so desperately needs it. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.